This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. Glenda Wilskett was a member of the Reparation and Rehabilitation Committee of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. She had a long history of human rights activism before her appointment to the TRC in 1995. A registered nurse, midwife, psychiatric nurse, she worked with political prisoners and their families in the 1980s, as well as with returning exiles in the 1990s. She helped found a trauma center for survivors of violence and torture, the first of its kind in South Africa. She was the Director of Transformation Services at UCT from 2010 until her retirement last year. I met her at her home in Plumstead, Cape Town, and asked her to reflect on the strengths and weaknesses of the TRC. She recalls the first hearing of the Human Rights Violations Committee in East London, which dealt with the torture and murder of several anti-apartheid activists, including the abduction and murder of the men who became known as the Craddock Four, Matthew Goniwe, Fort Tralata, Sparrow Konto and Sikrelo Mklawuli. That hall was packed to the rafters that day. It was a very emotional day. Um, and there are lots of um, images, you know, of people coming. And this very powerful image of uh, one of the testifiers coming in a wheelchair, being assisted by um, staff and family members. And his testimony, um, which really got to the Archbishop, and I suppose that was the one time when the Archbishop said, um, this is not about me, you know, it's a, it's about the testifiers. Um, and he really felt uh, um, uh, uh, bad that he broke down, you know, listening to this man that I referred to in the wheelchair. But the powerful testimonies by particularly Nyameka um, Koniwe and the other women of the the Craddock Four, those testimonies were very powerful. And that wail, I, I still remember, you know, how they were crying and she was talking about um, talking about. Uh, uh, the police coming in and the knowledge, you know, that, that, that this had happened to their husbands, they had been killed. And that wail, it's still in my mind. That wail that dripped through the consciousness of a country was of Namondi Kalata when she recalled how she discovered that her husband was one of those who had been abducted on their way back to Craddock from Port Elizabeth and hacked to death by security policemen. You know, at the time it was very difficult to actually know what the strengths were, were of the Commission. We were sort of navigating our way through the legislation. We were looking at the best ways in which we could develop a, a protocol, a, a, a form to capture the, 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 um, the submissions. We were looking at the best way to set up a database. Um, what were the best staff that we could employ in the various regions. So there was a lot of activity, behind-the-scenes activities happening so that we could try and make the, the commission more efficient and effective. She describes Alex Berain, the deputy chair of the commission, as a consummate administrator who was able to set up an efficient operation. 
We spent a lot of time looking at the at the legislation. Um, I think at that time we were blessed with the fact that we had political support for the commission. I mean, Madiba was around, and although there was no political interference in that, we can say without any contradiction. I interrupt myself now by telling you a story. We 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 were introduced to to Madiba. We were at Tainas, and um, he met us and addressed us, spoke to us, and then he says, and now I do not want to see you again. Meaning that I'm not going to influence how you you do your work. How did that make you feel? You know, I, I was very proud. I felt I, I felt so good. I mean, obviously, you know, there we were, you know, in his presence, having tea with him and and being introduced to him. And, of course, some of the commissioners he recognized, he knew about our work and so on. And some, of course, were new to him. And he interacted with us. But that statement that I do not want to see you again, as a cohort, obviously, because the chairperson had to give him feedback regularly, um, but that was that that was so reassuring that we had um, the freedom to do our work without political interference. She says it's important to take note of the name of the law that brought the TRC into being. It was called the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation. It was a journey. And what was the historical context that gave rise to the TRC? Between 1990 and 1994, we had the most violations. I mean, the country was in total turmoil. Um, we can mention all of the the, the, the really violent events, Poipatong, um, massacres, and the Inkata ANC um, uh, violations, uh, violence, um, and so on and so forth. And then we have this moment with the elections, <laughs> where we, it's absolutely peaceful, it's crazy. It's just, I mean, one can't wrap your head around it. But the the fact that we were to have a truth commission was negotiated during that very violent time. Towards the end of the negotiations process that brought about democracy, a process marred by sporadic incidents of violence, such as the far-right Ivy Abeer invading the talks or the assassination of SACP leader Chris Haney, it was clear that there needed to be some way to hold to account those who had violated human rights. The question was, given the balance of forces at the time, how? Within the ANC, there was this concern, you know, that we, if we have a truth commission, you know, we will just indemnify everybody and away we go. And Tabumbek, in fact, said, let's go for a trial. Let's go for trial. And the kind of Nuremberg a, a Nuremberg style was him so that we can hold the buggers to account. Those were his words. Some of the negotiators, including constitutional lawyer, the late Kader Asmo, who later became a cabinet minister, examined other models around the world. The question was, how does a country that is transitioning from authoritarianism to democracy deal with atrocities of the past in a way that does not provoke more conflict? On the one end of the spectrum was the Chilean model. 
That provided blanket amnesty to everyone who had committed human rights violations under the regime of General Pinochet, and all of its hearings were in camera. At the other end was a model of criminal trials. But as the TRC noted in its final report, Nuremberg-style tribunals were simply not a viable political option, given the balance of military and political forces that prevailed at the time. South Africa opted for something in between. There would be no blanket amnesty. It would be granted only if the applicant fulfilled certain conditions, and the hearings were to be held in public. Another controversy was whether those fighting for liberation against the apartheid government could be treated in the same manner if it was found that some of their cadres had violated human rights. Being able to hold both the liberation movements and and the apartheid establishment to account is an, was a, for a big issue. Because, you know, during the life of the commission, there was this big criticism that um, this even-handed approach, and there were many people from the liberation movements who said, you know, you cannot treat us the same as, as, as those in the apartheid establishment. Although there was much debate in the TRC about the notion of a just war, commissioners had to follow the law. We were bound by the, by the Act. You know, there were lots of things that, that, form, that was hard to swallow, I must say. There was a bitter pill to swallow, particularly this issue around the even-handedness and the second issue for me that was a bitter pill to swallow was the fact that the Commission was able to grant amnesties but not grant reparation. Because reparation and amnesties are, you know, the flip side of the same coin. Um, even today, people are very aggrieved about the fact that perpetrators who, who were deemed um, to comply with, with all the conditions of amnesty, in fact, you know, received it, and, 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 and we have a pitiful reparations uh, payout. So what happened to that money? The money is still there, I believe. So why are people not getting it? I don't understand why. They have gone to, the, to that little unit that was established in the Department of Justice around the reparations issue. And we just do not understand why. Because the money that presidents fund, the money is still there, as far as we know. The amnesty process was tighter, though. Most people who applied did not get it. The application of the conditions for amnesty were quite rigorous, especially the condition around full disclosure. The TRC's investigative unit tracked those who applied for amnesty to check whether there had been full disclosure. In fact, part of this unit still works to track the burial sites of those killed extrajudicially in the anti-apartheid struggle. And what may have happened with Alter Truth Commission? I was afraid that we would descend into a civil war. You know, there were moments when I thought, oh my goodness me, this, you know, we, <laughs> we're going to really have years and years of, of conflict. Um, People call it a miracle, I don't call it a miracle. Because I think people really sacrificed a lot um, for where we were then in 94. Democracy, she says, was brought about by blood, sweat and tears. But even after the transition, she feared a civil war. But it's interesting to note that even with all the horrible 
awful revelations during the Truth Commission. We had no revenge attack. Not one revenge attack. The nearest to revenge that a victim of apartheid came during the process was when one of the security policemen who had applied for amnesty for the killing of the Craddock Four went to the families to ask for forgiveness. One of the family members who had his arm in a plaster cast apparently locked him with the cast as he walked out of the house. The policeman, Eric Taylor, was denied amnesty for the murders. But what could the TRC not do, I asked her. It could not deal with the deep structural injustices caused by apartheid, the unequal education, the loss of land and rights and business opportunities. Does that require another process? That's the conundrum, she says, because the mandate of the TRC was to deal only with gross violations of human rights. In part, we tried always, when there was a public hearing, to have our researchers go and look at the social, sociological, economic situations of a various, of the various towns and villages and so on that we uh, were going to have hearings. So to provide a context within which the violations took place. There were also special hearings on aspects of the apartheid past to deal with some of the deeper issues. And the mandate of the TRC was just three years to cover 34 years of apartheid violations. So what needs to happen now to move towards reconciliation? Immediately after the commission, I thought that we were moving in the right direction. There was a lot of talk amongst I don't know whether you remember the whole conversation around beneficiaries of apartheid. And there were people who were, um, um, Mary Burton would probably have talked about this, you know, these initiatives of those of us who were bystanders and um, beneficiaries, what do we need to do to contribute? And people were saying even people who were victims of apartheid were now you know, middle class and had money and said, we're very happy to contribute to it. And all of those initiatives have failed. You know, I I think we've gone back. So how do we resuscitate that conversation? I think our country's in an ICU at the moment. Or high care, maybe. And I think that we need intensive care. We're not talking enough about the impact of the past. We're not Um, surfacing the stories of the ordinary people enough there isn't a space for empathy there isn't a space for empathy we are so angry everyone is angry at each other she says we need leadership to get out of the mess we are in but what kind of leadership it's hard to tell because and and i don't know whether there's a wave amongst the young people around this roads must fall the decolonization um of of the mines, the decolonization of the, acad- uh, of the academy, um, rethinking identity. Um, and maybe something will emerge from that, but it's still also coming out of a place of anger, a place of bitterness and anger and rough. It's rough. And how do we hear the voices of those who are outside a university? the unemployed, the youth, those who find it difficult to speak? We've got to start in the small places. You know, we've, uh, I, I think some, sometimes we think there must be like a tsunami, you know, a grand, big event or whatever. But I think in the still small spaces, 
just where we are, we need to, to make a difference and, um, and encourage dialogue across gender, across race, across economic class. And it's possible. There's still ongoing research trying to measure reconciliation, she says, such as the work done by the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation. Does it have any effect? Some people I know are tired of saying, I tell my story, I, but nothing happens to me. Here I am, I'm, I, I graduated so many years ago and I'm still without work. And I've told my story so many times. And I, I suppose maybe something top-down and bottom-up must happen. You know, there must be political will for something to happen to change the, the course of events. Um, and it needs to be a groundswell as well. And it must be evident in, in the body politic. It must be evident. It must be evident in our social and... Uh, uh, our social life and our communal lives, um, and and where where people I think in religious organisations, I always say that that's where where every day every Sunday you have a captive audience. Every Friday the mosques are full, Saturday shuls are full. So they 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 are captive audiences. Can you imagine what can happen if we use them? <laughs> In the past, she says, apartheid was a common enemy. Now we have, you know, the beast of economics. <laughs> we do have a common enemy, and we can't make it right. And she says there must be some way for those who could not testify before the Truth Commission. In some areas, such as KwaZulu-Natal, people were prevented from testifying to have an official record of their story. I think we can promulgate some kind of... Um, policy or, or legislation to say, you know, that there, there's this possibility that people can make either written submissions or come, you know, to a small uh, um, department with within the Department of Justice. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, that mechanism can happen whereby people can um, then decide whether these cases can go to the National Prosecuting Authority because the TRC is now officially finished and so on. I mean, that's also an outstanding matter because what has happened to those people, for example, who did not get amnesty and they were meant to, to, to be prosecuted, that the National Prosecuting Authority would take over. Now, we have not had prosecutions since then, so that's still a big outstanding matter. That was Glenda Wiltskut, interviewed in Cape Town on the 3rd of February 2016. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town, produced by Jean-Michel. Thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzani Na. You've just listened to History for the Future, what we can learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.